before Mike left town, we started reading a book together as a family um, called The Insanity of God. And um, I read this book actually about a year ago. Um, and it was just such a good book that I told my, I said, we ought to just read it together out loud as a family. And so we started doing that, um, before he left, but it's written by a guy named Nick and Nick puts together what he calls a persecution task force. And his desire is to go to nations where believers are persecuted and figure out how do we disciple believers who are facing persecution where they where they are. So like right now where Mike is, we have a family from our church who is working in a location. They've got a great business going there, but they're not allowed to share their faith. It is, it, it is illegal to share their faith. Mike is there right now with them and, and hopefully just bringing encouragement to them, even behalf on you guys as you guys pray for them while they're gone. But what would that look like? Disciple believers who live in a location where to live out your faith, you would be persecuted for or to discover and find out, I mean, how is it that in some places where the church is persecuted, not only does it survive, but it actually thrives. And so Nick wrote this book and he put together, he went to 60 different countries, talked to over 600 different believers just about their faith and extraordinary things that God had done in their life. One of the stories that is in this book is about a man named Dimitri. And so Nick's in Russia. He's talking to this guy named Dimitri. And Dimitri is telling him his story about how he grew up as a young boy. And his parents were both believers. But communism came in and took over so much that it pretty much suppressed and destroyed the church. So now Dimitri is older. He's married. He has sons. But the closest church to them is a three-day walk away. So he has this idea and he has this on his heart that he's going to take their family Bible and he's going to begin one night a week together as a family. They were going to meet together and he would read stories from the Bible. So he gets his wife and he gets his sons and he begins to read the scriptures to them. And then he would explain to them what they meant. And and pretty soon the, the boys are beginning to exchange stories together and tell each other stories from the Bible. And Dimitri teaches his wife and and his children, some songs of the faith that he had learned growing up. And, and pretty soon, because they lived in this, this small village, other people around could hear what was going on. And so, like, one day, like, 25 people are coming because they want to hear what it is that Dimitri is teaching. And then pretty soon it grows to 50 people. And then pretty soon it grows to 75 people. And the authorities catch word of what's going on. And so they show up and they tell Dimitri that he needs to stop this illegal church. And Dimitri laughed and said, how can you even call it a church? I'm not a trained, ordained minister. All we are is we're just a group of people who are meeting in my house and we're sharing stories and we're singing songs and we're praying together. We're even collecting our money and giving it to the poor and and those who have a need. How can you say that this is an established church? We're not. So the authorities go on, but they threaten him. And pretty soon it wasn't long before Dimitri lost his job at the factory. A few days later, his wife loses her teaching position. A few days later, his sons are expelled from school. But they continue to meet together, all these, these people that are coming in, in, in this village. And again, the, the authorities show up, and they begin to slap Dimitri around, and they begin to beat him. And one old lady who's sitting there, almost like something out of the Bible, she says, you cannot do this to a man of God or you will die. And she just kind of like lay, lay, lays it down right there. I don't know, my grandmother would probably do the same thing. Um, and so 
two days goes by and the cop or the authority figure who had come in and had beat Dimitri falls dead of a heart attack. And so the people in the village are like, okay, who is this God? We want to know what it is that you're teaching. So 150 people are showing up this little man, this man's crowded house. They're like hanging outside, listening in through the windows because they want to hear what's going on. Well, it wasn't long before the authorities show back up again and they arrest Dimitri. They put him in a really small cell prison, thousands of kilometers away from his family for 17 years. And he tells the story of, of sufferings. He tells the story of blood and sweat and, and beatings. And he said, the worst thing was, is I was the only believer in a prison of 1,500 inmates. That was the worst thing of all. He said, but I did two things. One thing I did that my dad taught me when I was small is every morning I would get up. And when I would get up, I would just go to God and I would lift my hands in praise. And I would begin to sing a song that my father taught me. And he called it a heart song. He said, so every morning I would do that. And the inmates, the other prisoners, they couldn't stand it that he was doing this. They would take their cups and they would bang it loud on the bars. And and they would begin to curse at him. And if they could, they would throw things at him. They didn't like it that he was doing this one bit. Another thing that he would do is he said, if I found any little scrap of paper anywhere, I would take that that scrap of paper and I would write down scriptures, every scripture I could remember, every story I could remember, and I would roll it up and I would try to tuck it in the wall of my cell, but it never failed. The jailers would come and they would find it and then they would beat him again. But one day he was out in the courtyard and he finds a whole sheet of paper and a pencil that's laying there right beside it. He said, I couldn't help myself. He said, I took it. He said, I, there was not any white space left on that paper. I wrote down every word in the Bible that I could remember and I rolled it up and I put it in my cell. Well, sure enough, the jailers, they come, they find it and they're dragging Dimitri out to the execution place. And as they're dragging him out, Dimitri says one by one, every 1,500 prisoners in that jail cell began to sing the heart song that Dimitri would sing every day to God. He said it was the most beautiful choir ever that the jailers finally said to him, who are you? He said, I am a child of Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. And the jailers were terrified. They let him go. It wasn't but a few days later that Dimitri was released and went home to his family. So Nick, who's, who's like writing all of this down in, in this book, he says, I'm sitting in this room with these pastors. Some of them have been in prison five years, 10 years, three years, four years. And every one of them are giving accounts of their imprisonment. But yet at the same time, extraordinary ways that God had been moving in their life, in their family's life, in their town's life. And I said to these guys, guys, why have you not like written these stories down? These should be like made into a movie or something. And they just kind of looked at him a little bit confused. So one of the pastors took Nick and took him over to him and put his arm on his shoulder and said, Nick, every morning you have sons, right? He said, yes. He said, well, do you get your sons up every morning before the sun comes up and take them to a window like this and say, okay, boys, now look, watch. The sun is about to come up. Come on, boys. Are you ready? Here it comes. The sun is going to come up in the east. Here it comes. Are you ready? And Nick said, no, I, why would I do that? That would be crazy. I mean, my, my children would think I was nuts. The sun comes up every day and the sun comes up always in the east. It's just what the sun does. And the pastor turned to Nick and said, Nick, just like that, 
That is how persecution is for us. It always has been a part of our life. It probably always will be a part of our life. This is normal. So I'm reading that. And I'm thinking about other stories that I told you last week about my own personal encounters of of traveling to places and seeing God work in extraordinary ways and not really knowing what do I do with these stories. And so I began to wrestle and I still am wrestling with God. And God's just asking me this question. I'm asking myself this question. I'm asking you this question today. Do you have room in your ordinary life for an extraordinary God? Or do you have just enough room for an ordinary God? You see, we don't give our life to following Jesus Christ and then everything goes back to normal after that. That's not how this works. That would be like asking Jesus to follow you. But you give your life to following Jesus Christ and he becomes Lord of your life and it doesn't go back to normal. Now God is in a process of rewriting and redefining and excavating places in your heart so that he is Lord over all. So last week we looked at the passage in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it there. And let me just kind of put this in. This is free. Okay. This isn't, it's not even in my notes. All right. Bring your Bible to church. I'm, I'm kind of one, I've, I've got my, I like my technology and all that, but I'll, I'll tell you this one thing I have figured out. I've, I've used both when Mike is preaching. And the things that I'm able to, to, to mark or to take note of in the word, then when I'm home during the week, it makes it so much easier than if I'm just like going through my electronics and it just doesn't hang with me. Just that, now I know I sound like an old crank pot saying that, but I'm just telling you, bring the word of God with you. Okay, that was free. All right, we'll go on. All right, so. We're looking in the book of Judges, okay, and just to recap, so if you weren't here last week, I'm going to catch you up so that we're all tracking together. What we did is we just kind of set some bookends for a man named Gideon, okay? And if we started at the beginning, we're going to call this bookend over on this side chaos, because Gideon is born into chaos. God had chosen Israelites to be his people. He said, I'm going to be your God and you should have no other gods before me. And he delivers them out of slavery and he brings them into the promised land. But eventually, after Moses dies and after Joshua dies, the people quit following after God. And they begin to take on the idols of their enemies. And they begin to worship the idols of their enemies. So that God delivered on what he said. God had told them, look, if you follow after the other idols and I'm no longer your God, then I will hand you over to your enemies. They will plunder you. They will devour you. And so that's what's taking place in this time. So God is raising up leaders that he called judges. Now, judges weren't like uh, kings necessarily. Judges were the people that would help help them apply God's law to their daily life. Okay, So God would raise up a judge, and as long as that judge was living, the people would follow after God. But when that judge died, the people would do evil in the sight of God. So God would raise up another judge, and the people would follow God, and that judge would die, and the people would do evil in the sight of God. So it was like this spiritual roller coaster, following God and not, and following God and not. Okay? So that's over here. This is what Gideon is born into. So then we came over here and we looked at this bookend of Gideon's life, where we see Gideon is courageous. We see Gideon as a conqueror. We see Gideon who takes 300 men, and he goes up against an army of 135,000, and they defeat the army. Impossible odds of one soldier to 450 soldier, and God gets the glory. But we see Gideon over here as this courageous guy. And we did this because often what happens is we look over here and we see someone and we think, wow, 
Look at them. Look what they've become. Look what they've accomplished. Look what they're doing. Look at their faith. And we begin to measure ourselves and go, I could never be like that. I could never do that. I could never be that bold. And we often do that. And so what we did last week is we began to peek into in the middle. Not this book in, not that book in, but this private conversation that Gideon is having with God. And so God initiated this conversation with Gideon. He comes to Gideon. This is what his words sound like. Sweetness. He says this. He says, Gideon, I'm with you. You are a warrior. I want you to go and save Israel. Go in the strength that you have. I am with you. You're going to do this as if you were one man in such a way that could only be explained by me. Sweet conversation with God. But Gideon's words, Gideon's back talk that we saw last week mirrors many of ours. If we could hook up, hook up a microphone to your mind and your thinking and your heart, like some of you just panicked right now, like, ooh, everybody would know what I'd be thinking then, right? And we could put it over like a loudspeaker, okay? At first, you might be embarrassed at what came out of what people could hear that you actually thought. But I think this, I think pretty soon after the embarrassment went away, that you would begin to go, oh, wait a minute. I mean, what, what she's saying is, is what I feel too. And what he's thinking is, is what I'm thinking. What, what they're afraid of is, is what I'm afraid of. Also, and what they're struggling with is what I'm struggling with. And so Gideon's words sounded something like this. See if they don't match yours. So if God is with me, then why is all this happening to me? And I feel like God has forgotten us. And I feel like God has abandoned me. Have you ever felt that way at times? And then Gideon goes on, but I'm the weakest in my family. And I'm the smallest. Ever felt like that? And so these are the words that Gideon is saying. And God's saying, hey, look, Gideon, I've called you. I'm going to be close to you. I'm commissioning you to go out. I am with you. And so God initiated that he's going to ask God or Gideon to participate. I want you to look with me in verse 25. We're going to read We're going to pick up a little bit. We're going to fast forward through a few scriptures. You can go back and read on your own. But in verse 25, we're going to start there. It says, that night, so they're having this conversation. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with the stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. And so Gideon took 10 men of his servants and he did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So last week we looked at creating space in our life for an extraordinary God. And we looked at how God comes in and he wants to create that space by interrupting our normal, which is never convenient. He shakes up our definition of who we think we are and who we think he is. And he calls us and he's close to us and he commissions us. And so God initiates this process, but now we're invited to participate. And so how is it that we create space in our life and in our heart for an extraordinary work of God. The first thing is this, is it requires daring obedience. I want you to think about what God has just asked Gideon to do. I mean, first of all, he told him he's going to go save Israel, which seems like, hey, I, okay, let, let's, let's go. Let's go do that. But God's like, hey, wait a minute. We got a clean house. 
We got to take some, we got to take care of some things that are personal. We got to take some care of some things that, that are on the home front. You know, those idols that your, your dad's got, Gideon, you know, the ones that are up there on that high place, the, the bell altar that people go and worship at and the Asherah pole that is there beside it. You're going to cut it down. You're going to tear it down and you're going to reassemble it. And you're going to use that Asherah pole as kindling, as firewood. And you're going to take your father's bull and you're going to slaughter it. And you're going to offer it as a sacrifice to me on top of this. Gideon, we are rearranging normal. Gideon, we are taking what is close to you. We are taking what has been your families and we're going to redefine it. It cannot be this way any longer. So Gideon's world is about to get rocked. Gideon's family's world is about to get rocked. The town is about to be rocked. But tell me if this is not true. When God tells us to do something, even if the first instruction is specific, we want to know what the second step is, right? Come on, don't leave me hanging. Surely I'm not the only one, right? If God tells me, I want you to move, I want you to lead this, I want you to do that, and he gives me the very first instruction, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm in. So what's the second thing that comes after that? We want more revelation before we obey. And God wants more obedience before he will reveal. He gave Gideon specific instructions, but he didn't tell Gideon how his family was going to react. He didn't tell him how the town is going to react. He just said, here's what you've got to do. And this was not an easy task for Gideon. He is disrupting a system that has been put in place. So I began to think about what my thoughts sound like if I put my thoughts over a loudspeaker to you today, like when when God comes to me and, and tells me I want you to do something. And this is what my thoughts sound like. They sound something like that, so uh, like this. So instead of obeying, really, I'm overcome with fear, which I kind of told you guys that last week, right? So I'm overcome with fear, and so then I become overcautious and overanxious because I overanalyze and overcomplicate the thing that he's asked me to do so completely that then I'm completely overwhelmed. And then after that, I overcompensate by being overcontrolling, but that's okay because it's just my overdriven, overachieving, overaggressive self and personality. So instead of taking the one step that he's asked me to take, instead of doing that, I overcommit and I overextend, I become over busy so that now I'm completely overstressed and overexhausted, which means that I'm going to overreact to my husband and overrespond to my children, which means I probably will overeat something that's highly overreacted. <laughs> now, I don't know if your mental hyper, hyperventilation sounds like that when God asks you to do something, but that's what mine sounds like, okay? And which was probably a little bit over-exaggerated just to make a point, but I think you get the point. So when God comes to you and he asks you to obey and you begin to wonder whether or not you're going to, you're beginning to wonder what this is going to look like if you do. And you get that feeling that is something that's over and then fill in the blank, overwhelmed, overanalytical about it, whatever it might be, then ask yourself this question. What part of my heart is God not over? What part of my heart does God not have reign over what part of my heart is hyperventilating that i'm i'm beginning to be fear and i'm beginning to have all these over things i'm beginning to be over anxious and and i'm not really sure about it what part of your heart does god not have lordship over the second thing that requires for us to create space for god to do an extraordinary work is this is it requires demolishing anything anything that has replaced him 
There were idols. There were places of worship. There were chants. There were dances. There was praise that was going up to another God. And it was not the God, Yahweh. It was not Lord God that had delivered them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. There was a place where God had been replaced and it was completely visible to everyone around. And God told Gideon, you've got to demolish it. It cannot be visible anymore. You know, there are times I pray that God would put friends in my life that would just be very honest with me and we could hold each other accountable and things like that. And then there's times that God actually does that. And I'm not real thrilled about it when it happens. You know, it's, it's that friend that can be, um, they can ask questions that are intrusive. They can be brutally honest with you. And so I'm having coffee with a friend and I'm telling her how I'm really frustrated because there, there's this person who, they don't really like me all that much. And that really bothers me. And I'm really trying to get them to like me. And, you know, I'm doing this and it's like it doesn't really matter. And I do that. And it's like they just get, completely gets overlooked. And I don't know what I've done to this person that they don't really like me. I'm not really even sure I really like them. I just want them to like me. Okay. But I, I'm like just telling her and, and kind of just like vomiting all of my frustration and all of my emotion. And, and probably saying it like three or four times like girls do. Right, guys? The first amen yet. Wow. Right there. And so I sat there telling her all this and she looks at me and she says, Lori, you have an idolatry problem. And I thought, and I said in a very high pitched voice, what? As if that was an invitation to say it again. So she repeats it. She says, you have an idolatry problem. And I, I mean, I really, I'm like, I'm taken back. I've, I've been accused of a lot of things. I've been told a lot of things, but I've never been told that I have an idolatry problem. I go on mission trips to places to minister to people who have idolatry problems. I don't have an idolatry problem. And so the conversation, I mean, I didn't really know what to say. And she knew that I didn't really know what to say. She knew I was a little bit offended, but I think she also wanted the words to kind of resonate with me because she's just that kind of friend. Yay. And, and so we left, I mean, the conversation ended and it was awkward and I'm driving home. And the more I thought about it, the more furious I became. I do not have an idolatry problem. I I mean, I don't have anything in my home that's been carved out, any images I bow down and worship. I don't have an idolatry problem. It ruined my whole day. I like come in the house and Mike's like, you know, how was your coffee? It was fine. And I don't have an idolatry problem. (laughs) But as I grow up, I'm still growing up. There is one thing I've learned that when... Someone says something to you and you feel somewhat defensive about it. There's probably a hint of truth that needs to be considered. And I couldn't get her words out of my mind. And so they were resonating and just marinating and all night long. And I got up the next morning. and I thought, okay. And I wrote down in my journal, what is an idol? What is an idol? 
And I had been through scriptures. Matter of fact, I would read them and I'd think, oh, those poor Israelites, they cannot get their act together with this idolatry problem. Some of them might even skip over because I don't have an idolatry problem. And so I began to think about places that I've been and people that I've seen worshiping idols. And I begin to think through the characteristics of what they were doing and why they were doing it. And I thought about my friends in one village who would take the blood of a chicken and they would go out to the edge of the village and they would just take it and they would, they would offer it to the spirits and they would dance and they would chant. Why? Because they were afraid that the gods might inflict harm or death on them and they wanted protection. And so they would dance around to keep their gods happy to appease them. And so I wrote, an idol is anything that I have to work at really hard to gain approval or any dance that I do for someone in order to to please them or so that they will approve of me as an idol. And I wrote out to the side, people-pleasing, idolatry. Galatians 1.10 says, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but God. And if pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. So I went on and I started thinking some more. And I thought about um, another, a different village where they've got this huge tree. And up in the tree, they've got like these bird skulls and frog skulls that are kind of tied in some kind of a package deal with corn stalks and feathers and twigs and so forth. And they would put them up in this tree because this is like the spirit tree in the village. And so I'm walking through with my friend and she's telling me about it. I do what every American does in a new place. They take out their camera to take a photo, right? Selfie, spirit tree, okay? And all the Africans start kind of like freaking out a little bit in this village because this, this was a sacred tree to them. It was sacred. And, and they believed that if when I took that photo that it would steal the spirit from that tree. And so I thought through that. And I thought, anything that is more sacred or holy or set apart than God is an idol. Any system, including my family, my work, my church, my plans, my dreams, that if someone interrupts it, touches it, moves it, changes it, rearranges it, including God, I panic, become self-defensive about it. And I wrote out to the side, controlling. Controlling. My world. I thought about people in, in Asia that I've been to, and I, I mean, that idols were everywhere. There were, there were little idols. You could buy them on the side store. There were huge idols as big as this building. They were everywhere. And I would watch them tie strings on the idol or give flowers to the idol or leave money for the idol or leave food for the idol. And I would think, oh my goodness, wow. And I thought anything that I put my trust in and I allow to define me more than God is an idol. They did it to gain riches or inner peace or some happy satisfaction. And so I began to think where I got allowed my definition of who I think I am come. And I would often get it from comparing myself with other people, almost a false identity. So I wrote, comparing myself leads to idolatry. If you don't believe me, I'll, I'll keep it personal. I won't go meddling in your business. But like I can remember when I created a Facebook account, which seems like so long ago to say that in the past tense, but... I remember, you know, the first time I had it, you know, I've got like five friends and then I had like 10 friends, you know, it's like, oh man, I'm becoming popular. Wow. 25 friends. I am so liked, you know, and pretty soon it's like, you know, 140 friends. And then one day I open it up, 139 friends. 
somebody unfriended me. And I like spent like the next hour and a half trying to go through and figure out who unfriended me. I can't believe that they unfriended me. I mean, am I not likable? Am I not lovable? I mean, I'm not their friend anymore. They don't, did I do something? And I completely had put my identity in something false, allowing it to define who I am. You, you know you do it because, I mean, I do it too. I post something, I go, how come I only got 13 likes on that photo? That is a great photo. Here's another one, the last one, actually. I thought about some believers that actually would come to church and um, they would come and they would dance in their beautiful clothes and, and so forth. And they would sing praises to God and they had their Bibles and they gave their offering. But you only if you knew them really close, I mean, like personal, would you know that tied around their waist was a charm that kept around, they believed to keep around evil spirits or around their ankle, but it was covered up with a cloth or maybe around their neck, but it was tucked down, you know, somewhere else. And so it was like hidden. They were, they like, they had the best of both worlds. They were worshiping God and they were worshiping their idols. In second Kings seventeen forty one, it says this, they feared the Lord and also served their idols. Let me read that again. Let that resonate. They feared the Lord and they also served their idols and their children likewise and their grandchildren. And I just wrote out to the side this, and when I try to have everything, busyness can lead to idolatry. Whatever it is that's stealing my attention, I want it all to make sure I'm protected and I'm satisfied and I'm secure. Listen, idolatry is not a foreign culture's world view it is indigenous to the human heart it grows there so easily the soil in our heart is just right for it and it always has been so what makes us think that we would be any different because we serve god that we don't have something else that has taken place and space of where god should be it's hard to recognize idols because we've normalized them. They're just normal. We justify them. It's just the way I am. It's just the way I was raised. It's just how things are. And we normalize them. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a poll. Get your phone out like we did last week. And we're just going to be level, get level honest. So I asked the question last week, you know, where you, where you would struggle. What was your default struggle? And, and here and in the first service, both, the, both services, it was insecurity. So... In the text code at the top, you're going to type in the number 22333. And which of these is likely to lead to idolatry in your heart? Is it people-pleasing? Text that number. Controlling? Comparisons? Or busyness? Which of those four do you find could lead your heart astray? Could easily create a space where God is not Lord where there isn't a place for him to exist only and alone. You know, the thing is, is as we we're watching these numbers and, and we look at all of those things and, and we can, we can easily like almost like sit around with our peeps. Okay. And we can say, Oh, look, you have that problem too. I've got that problem too. And it, I mean, it's just like, we almost feel better, right? We feel kind of justified. We can rationalize it. Well, I'm not the only one, thank goodness, who's got a problem with people pleasing. Right? 
Matter of fact, I'm just that way because my mom was that way and my, her mom was that way or my dad was that way and, and his dad was that way. And so it just kind of, it just kind of runs in our family. That's just the way it is. We're just over anxious. We just please people. We just whatever it is. And here's the reality is, is that you may not have created it, but you are most certainly responsible for removing it. You may not have been the one responsible for creating it in your life, but you are the one responsible for removing it. Let's go on to the third one. It says this. This would be the third thing that we would have to do to create space in our life for God to do the extraordinary. The third one is this. is It requires devotion to whose name is on the line. And we looked at Gideon. We looked at Gideon last week. We looked at Gideon at the beginning of, of this service and what God is asking him to do. But this is much bigger than Gideon. This is so much bigger than Gideon. This story goes way beyond Gideon and God delivering the Israelites. And pretty soon Jesus comes from this lineage and so forth. This story is much bigger than Gideon. This is God's name is on the line here. And God's telling Gideon, you're going to go out and you're going to save Israelite. Well, let's just pretend that the idols stayed there. Let's just pretend that the Asherah and, and the Baal gods stay there. Who do you think is going to get the glory when they come back with the victory? It could be a toss up. Was it God, Yahweh, God, the living one true God, or was it Baal? So it's got to go. God's name is on the line, and the story is much bigger than you. When you go to work and you profess to be a believer, your life story is much bigger than you. God's name is on the line. In your family, listen, I've done it to even to my own kids. I could, I could get up here and tell you here's the way I've got to live. I could go home and I could just rake my kids over the, over the floor. God's name is on the line, even at home, mom and dads. Kids are listening to what you're saying. Is it equaling what you believe? There are so many verses that, that we could look at. My friend, I, I would even challenge you to, to look them up. Just look up God's name. And, and I started doing it in my Bible. Every time I come to a scripture that says something about his name, I circle it out to the right, out to, out to the side. I, I put it, it's all about him. It's all about him. It's all about him. There are so many verses. We're just, we're just going to pop up a few really quick. Why does God forgive our sins? Psalm 25, 11 says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Why does God lead us to do right? Psalm 23, 3 says this. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's not about you. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 40. I, this is one I quote when I'm struggling a lot. It says this, it says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he climbed to me and he heard my cry and he brought me up out of the pit of destruction out of the miry clay and he set my feet up on a rock making my footsteps firm and he put a new song in my mouth a song of praise to our god so that i could feel really much better about myself right is that what it says no why did he why does he do that so that many will see and fear and they will trust in the lord the story is much bigger than gideon the story is much bigger than you and god's name is on the line you know, I challenged you last week to pray something like this. God, do something with me that can only be explained by you. God, do something with me that can only be explained by you. But I want to tell you this truth. Before God does something with you that can only be explained by him, he's probably going to do something in you that can only be explained by him. He's going to excavate that habit, that 
what we call that's just normal in my life. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna rearrange the heart. He's going to change that attitude. He's going to change how you think. He's going to change how you live. Because his name is on the line. You know, when Jared and I were talking about the service today, he said, you know, we've got all these baptisms that we're going to be celebrating and we're going to be doing worship. He said, how would you feel about just ending the service? I mean, just like when you're done, we just go. And I thought, well, that would be really awkward. (laughs) I don't know that I really want to do that. But okay, you know, we can give it a try. And I got thinking about my conversation that I had with my friend. And we're sitting there and and she's like telling me, Lori, you have an idolatry problem. And then, I mean, how do you respond to that? What was it? I mean, what was it supposed to do? Get like right on my knees in the coffee shop right there and repent? Well, that would be an idea, but that didn't happen. I mean, was it? I mean, what was I supposed to do? Was I supposed to agree with her? Because I certainly didn't at the moment. I had to like let it resonate. It had to marinate within me a little bit. And so I thought, you know what? Sure, Jared, that's what we'll do today. We'll just leave, just like I did at the coffee shop. And it's going to be awkward. You laugh now. But when I get up, I walk off the stage here in just a minute, and there's just quiet silence. You're going to think what one little girl afterward, after the first service, she came up to me as soon as it was done. And after everybody sat there for a minute, like, is she serious? We're really done. There's really nothing else that's coming out. She came up to me. She said, yeah, you're right. I was thinking that was really awkward. And it is. But see what we'd like, because what's normal is we know what to anticipate. We know that when we come to church, that we know what's going to happen. We're going to come in, and if we get here on time, we're going to sit down. But if not, when we come in, everybody's going to be standing up. We probably will remain standing up while everybody continues to sing. And Jared is up here jumping around, leading us, and, and so forth. And I may sing some of the songs, and some of the songs I don't know, but I'm trying to learn them. And I'm not really sure that I can always keep up, and I don't sing that great anyway. But that's kind of what we do in the beginning. And then, like, after that, then, you know, Mike's going to get up or somebody's going to get up and they're going to give a message and, and I'm going to listen to it. And sometimes I like it. And sometimes I don't. Sometimes it's like, did, did I fall asleep or was somebody else snoring? I'm, I'm not sure which one that was. And so we know that after that's done, then we're going to have like the announcement and, and, or maybe there, probably after Mike sings, there, there, there would be a song too, you know, and, and we might pray or we might just sing or I don't, you know, it just kind of, it kind of varies a little bit, but that's kind of normal around here at Grace Point Church. And then someone will get announcements and they'll say, okay, you know, y'all go home, have a great day, be blessed, live on mission, whatever it might be, because that's normal here. We're not going to be normal today. Do you have room in your ordinary life for an extraordinary God? And if not, then what has to be demolished? What have you got to daringly obey? What have you got to be devoted completely only to his name? What is it? What idol? What is it in your heart? What is it in your life that you've got to create space? You've got to participate in creating space for God to do an extraordinary work in you and through you that really isn't about you, but only about him. What is it?